Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Today, we have a very special episode for you, featuring two of our favorite mini failure episodes so far. You may have heard us talk about our mini failure episodes before. They're shorter versions of our regular episodes and feature failures with straightforward causes or limited information. We have a list of almost 100 failures that we want to tell you about, but they don't all fit into our regular episode format. The first mini failure we're sharing with you is Lake Pannier in Louisiana. The entire lake drained into an underground salt mine in a matter of minutes. They even caught it on video. And the second mini failure is about the Cantera Loop rail disaster. In the 90s, a train derailed into the Sacramento River on a very challenging section of track. In addition to hearing about the failure, you'll also hear about Brian and I's love for trains. Choo-choo! If you like the mini failure episodes you'll hear today, there are others exclusively available on our Patreon page. For $5 a month, less than a pint of beer, you can get access to more of these episodes and you can support our show so we can keep bringing you great content. There's a link to the Patreon page in the show notes for this episode, or you can check out the support page on our website, failurology.ca for a link and a list of our current and upcoming bonus episodes. Without further ado, here are the mini failures. Not satisfied with buzzing your hair? Don't want to pay the price of an excellent clips haircut? When you want a mediocre haircut for a mediocre price, Mediocre Clips is your out-of-bathroom haircutting destination. Same burnt-out light bulbs as your bathroom, but our stylists have slightly more hair-trimming experience than you do. Mediocre Clips. When okay is good enough. Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta. Welcome to our first mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full Failureology episode. Essentially, we have a list of failures we want to tell you about, but haven't been able to dig up enough info to talk about them for 45 minutes. These episodes are just the failure, no news and no ads. It's like Failureology light. This week's mini failure is about Lake Peñor in Louisiana, USA. I'm so fascinated with this story. This is a really impressive failure. An entire lake drained into a salt mine in a matter of minutes. And they even caught parts of it on video, which is just a little bit crazy to think about. It's like a large-scale draining of your bathtub. Except it's a lake. Which should be bigger than your bathtub. I, I hope so. Otherwise, that's kind of a pond. I don't even know if that is a pond. It's probably just a bathtub. <laughs> lake Pignor used to be a three-meter deep freshwater lake in Louisiana, but on November the 20th of 1980, a man-made disaster changed the lake and its shores. The water's now brackish with a depth of 60 meters, and it's the deepest lake in Louisiana. So brackish means that it's a mix of salt and freshwater, which is an interesting and weird word. And and the salt portion of that came from a salt mine that was underneath no, uh, the original. No? No. Where did it come from? So when the lake drained, it reversed the flow of water and the Gulf of Mexico drained north for the first time, maybe ever. And the, the salt water comes from the ocean, not from the salt mine. 
I actually found that in what I was reading specifically said the salt water did not come from the salt mine, which is interesting. That's absolutely fascinating. I know. We're going to get into that because right. we talk about the waterfall. Okay. So the Diamond Crystal Salt Company salt mine under the water had been mining salt since 1919, which was a couple years before I was born. <laughs> Texaco oil rig contracted out to the Wilson brothers was doing exploratory drilling above the mine, which is a fairly, I feel it's a fairly common arrangement, um, probably for that time, and it, it happens a little bit now too. So Wilson Brothers had gotten a 350 millimeter drill bit stuck for about two and a half hours before this situation occurred. And it's believed that the drill punctured the roof of the mine and the entire lake drained into the salt mine. It's mind blowing. <laughs> All evidence to identify the cause was unfortunately washed away, also not surprising, but the engineers from Texaco and Diamond Crystal worked together and they were able to estimate the approximate location of where the lake broke through into the mine. As the water drained into the salt mine, the hole got bigger and bigger and eventually sucked in, this list is a little long, the drilling platform, 11 barges, a tugboat, many trees, and a quarter square kilometer of lakeshore drained into the mine. The lake usually drained into Vermilion Bay. So it was fresh water draining into Vermilion Bay, which ultimately drained into the Gulf of Mexico. But since so much water had drained into the mine, that flow of water was reversed and the lake actually brought salt water in from Vermilion Bay. And this ended up creating the tallest waterfall ever in Louisiana at 50 meters tall as the lake refilled itself with salt water. And then the air in the mine shafts over time erupted either as compressed air or as 120 meter tall geysers. And it was all captured on video, which I think is one of the greatest parts about this. Yeah, so fascinating. You guys got to watch it. There's a link. In this disaster or in this failure, no humans died, but unfortunately, three dogs died. That's really sad. It is. All 55 employees in the mine escaped. All seven crew members on the drilling rig fled. And a fisherman who was on the lake, presumably fishing, escaped. Once the pressure equalized, nine of the 11 barges that had originally been swallowed up in the mine popped out again in the whirlpool that was created after. Which is also interesting. Texaco and the Wilson brothers ended up paying $32 million to Diamond Crystal and $12.8 million to a nearby botanical garden and plant nursery called Live Oak Gardens. This all came from out-of-court settlements. The mine was officially closed in 1986, and since 1994, AGL Resources have used the Salt Dome as a storage and hub facility for pressurized natural gas. The locals are not exactly thrilled about this development. Yeah, that's not I'm not overly surprised about that. I don't I don't know how I'd feel about it either. So the Mine Safety and Health Administration ended up releasing a report on the incident in August 1981, which documented just about everything except the specific cause. But they did list two possible causes for the collapse of the lake bed into the mine. The first is that the mining operation experienced subsidence on the surface and stress change underground. They had been monitoring this since the 70s, and in 1971, an engineering study stated that, quote, the entire structure of the salt dome is not stable. 
Although there was no visible structural failure witnessed during inspections over the years, it's possible that a weakened structure developed into a catastrophic failure as mining continued. So it's possible that over time, the earth that remained from mining between the mine and the lake bed just gave way. But it's also entirely possible and oddly coincidental that the drilling rig was on site at the time of this failure. And the drilling rig had become stuck about two and a half hours before the failure occurred, which resulted in a loss of circulation of drilling mud and the continued management of pressure at the drill site. Sidebar, if you want more info on drilling rigs and how they use drilling mud to manage pressure at the wellhead, go back and check out episode 25 of our regular episodes. We covered the Deepwater Horizon disaster and included what I think, biasedly, is a pretty good overview of how drilling rigs work. And I actually learned a lot about oil and gas rigs researching that episode. So if you want to read more about wellheads and drilling rigs and how the mud may have affected the pressure, definitely go check out episode 25. So there you have it. An entire lake drained into a salt mine in a matter of minutes. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology, or you can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. This week's episode of Failurology is brought to you by the Sit Down Stand Up Paddleboard Company. Whether you like to sit down or stand up, the Sit Down Stand Up Paddleboard Company has something for you. Don't miss our paddle sale. It's quite the ordeal. Hi, and welcome to Failurology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our fourth mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode. Essentially, we have a list of failures we want to tell you about, but haven't been able to dig up enough info to talk about them for 45 minutes. These episodes are also just the failure, no news and no fake ads, at least for now. It's like failureology light. This week's mini failure is about the Dunsmuir Rail disaster in Dunsmuir, California. On July 14, 1991, a Southern Pacific train derailed into the upper Sacramento River at a horseshoe curve of track known as the Cantera Loop, just north of the town of Dunsmuir, California. Several of the derailed cars made contact with the water, including a tank car, but they didn't know what was there at the time. Spoiler alert, it's on our podcast, so it's probably bad. Like, <laughs> really, really bad. This one's really bad. It's not good. By the morning of July 15th, it was apparent that the tank car had ruptured and spilled its entire contents into the river. This was approximately 70,000 liters of the soil fumigant, metamsodium, which is a biocide that pretty much kills any living thing. Like we said, really bad. Yeah, this is really bad, but we're going to back up a little bit here. What was the Cantera Loop? So the train route through California goes past one of the tallest volcanic peaks in the U.S., which is Mount Shasta. To avoid building and operating a track in mountainous terrain, which if you've hiked some mountains, you know is probably going to be a pain in the butt, the train route went down into the Sacramento River Valley. But in order to do that, they had to get trains in and out of the valley, and this was one of the biggest design challenges that the engineers faced. In order to overcome the steep slope, 
the track has two switchbacks in it near Dunsmuir. Heading uphill, the first is the Cantera Loop, which is located right at the Sacramento River crossing and is the location of this failure. And the second is the Sawmill Curve, which is less sharp, still challenging, but less so than Cantera, and it's located near the highway. The Cantera Loop is one of America's most challenging sections of rail track, with a curvature of 14 degrees and a curve radius of 125 meters. It's so challenging, in fact, that trains require extra locomotives to overcome gravity as they climb out of the Sacramento River Valley. They house these extra locomotives 8 kilometers south of the loop. The train that derailed was 1,800 meters long, with 97 cars. 11 of those cars were loaded, and 86 were empty, for a total weight of just over 4,000 tons. The train was traveling north up the canyon from San Francisco to Portland. At around 9.40pm, as the train was approaching the Cantera Loop, the lead locomotive and the seven cars behind it derailed into the Sacramento River. One of those was the tank car Brian mentioned earlier. The derailment was ultimately caused by the configuration of the train. There were too many empty light cars at the front of the train and too many heavy cars at the back, and this led to what's known as the stringlining effect. So the forces of the heavy front and rear sections of the train tugged away from each other, causing the lighter cars in the middle to come off the tracks to form a straight line between both ends. So pretend like you're holding two ends of a string and then you pull them tight. That's what happened. The front and the back of the train were those two fixed ends of the string and they pulled tight, which then pulled the rest of the cars in the middle off the track. There was also a problem with the lead locomotive. It hadn't been working properly and had been surging and jerking. And this surging was happening as the train went into the curve, which also increased the risk of string lining. In order to prevent this type of derailment from happening again, they built a barrier to prevent string lining trains from falling into the river. They added regulations to train configuration to prevent string lining in the first place. And then regulations were added to reduce the length of the trains, reduce speed, and upgrade locomotives pulling the train. So... A lot of trains have traveled through the Cantera Loop since and before this failure. This route gets traveled quite a bit. It's a pretty popular route. I'm not going to say there hasn't been any other disasters, but theres I don't think there's been any that are this extreme. But I am glad to see that they've put measures in place to to prevent this from happening again. I do find this failure to be really, really interesting. I really... Fun fact about me. I really like trains. That's my favorite way to travel. Of all forms of transportation, trains are my favorite. I went to Ireland a couple years ago, and we traveled everywhere by train, and it was the coolest thing ever. Trains are super good for traveling. I, I was in Switzerland many years ago, and uh, traveling between cities on the on the train and having train beers was a great way to get around the country. Yeah, it's so to me, it's it's kind of like air travel to an extent, as in you're just a passenger, and there's features and things on the train. You know, you can get up and go to the washroom, but you know, there's food cars sometimes and there's drink cars sometimes, but you're really just riding until you can do kind of whatever you want and you bring stuff to keep you occupied like that. You know, I pack for the train similar to how I'd pack for a plane, but there's usually Wi-Fi on the train. You have cell service. You you can look out the window and you can see stuff. There's not crazy, usually not crazy security to get onto the train platform. It's a lot more, seats like, it's are more comfortable. Yeah, seats are more comfortable. Sometimes you get to ride backwards, which is cool. They're usually not full, so you get to, uh, you can kind of sit and spaced out. Also, I think this is really cool, and this is so weird that I think this is cool, but they don't check your ticket before you get on the train. They check your ticket while you're riding. So everyone just like gets on the train. 
and they just trust that everyone has a ticket. And then someone comes around and checks your ticket as you're traveling to the first stop, which I think is so interesting to me that they just let you walk on the train. Maybe I fly too much. I don't know. But it's just so I think it's just such I love trains. I love them so much. So this this failure is what I've wanted to do for a while. And I'm really glad that we're doing these mini fails because it's kind of a simpler failure and there's not a lot to it. So as much as I've tried, we probably wouldn't been able to cover this on a regular episode. Trains are trains are great. And I hope that North America gets on the high speed rail bandwagon train wagon. Yeah, I'd love a train. First of all, a train to Edmonton. Why don't we have a high-speed Alberta train? So for any listeners that aren't familiar with Alberta geography, Calgary and Edmonton are both cities that are over a million people in Alberta, the two biggest cities. They're about 300 kilometers apart, pretty much north-south from each other. It takes two and a half-ish, three hours to drive up to Edmonton, about the same time to fly once you go through security and grab a bag if you have a bag. And they've been trying to build a high-speed rail connection between the cities for 40 plus years, a significant period of time that the terrain is not inhospitable to building a high-speed rail connection. It's fairly flat between the two cities. There's no giant mountain passes that they need to go through or around. There are a few river valleys they'd have to go across or, you know, creek beds they have to go across, but it's not an insurmountable high-speed rail access. So they feel if if Switzerland can have high-speed rail, Calgary Edmonton can probably figure out a high-speed rail connection. Well, and we... We like to joke about how Saskatchewan is flat and you can watch your dog run away for three days, but that drive is flat and it's straight. Like when Brian says it's north-south straight, like he means it. You, The only time you really turn is to go around Red Deer. It's yeah, there's, like, a, it's a, there's a couple, there's a couple more than that, but it's, it's, it's essentially straight right between the two. Yeah. And like I kind of just mentioned, Red Deer's right in the middle. Well, it's a little bit further north, but it's Red Deer's pretty much in the middle. So it's not, you know, you serve that corridor serves basically three cities. Red Deer has, I think, 500,000 people. And then to me, eventually, you know, you put that piece in and then you add to it later. Like it would be really nice to have a train to Lethbridge, maybe Medicine Hat, and as well one to Fort McMurray. But the other thing I think that's important about this train to me, Via Rail, which is the, for the Americans listening, the Amtrak of Canada, doesn't come to Calgary. We don't have a train service. We're not on the Canadian network, which really pisses me off because I'd love to take trains places and I can't. If we had a high-speed train to Edmonton, I would gladly take our that high-speed train to Edmonton and get on Via Rail and take the train. Like I think it would be cool to take the train to Vancouver. Or to take the train to Saskatchewan. Well, maybe not Saskatchewan. Sorry, Saskatchewan people. I like Saskatoon. Okay, well, I guess you'll be the only passenger. <laughs> but I uh, know that the corridor between Calgary and Edmonton, the the vehicle traffic that goes back and forth every day is, is quite significant. As well as the air travel back and forth, there's probably 10 flights a day between, 10 plus flights a day between two or three different airlines that travel back and forth between Calgary and Edmonton. So... There should be people that are willing to hop on a high-speed train if it was reliable and it could get them, say, from downtown Calgary to downtown Edmonton. Maybe there's a stop in Red Deer. Um, So I think there would be a market. But again, this is a substantial investment for likely the government at the federal and the provincial level, possibly a little bit of municipal input to make this project happen. I have driven that drive many times before our Edmonton office was established because my firm has done work kind of all over Alberta and our Edmonton office is, I think it's 
seven or eight years old, maybe a little bit older than that. But it's, it's, you know, I've been with the firm. I was with the firm before the Edmonton office was opened. And so I've done that drive many, many times. And I usually leave at 5 a.m. because that's the only way I get to drive up without a ton of cars on the road. And when I drive back around two, three o'clock in the afternoon, because, you know, that's kind of a full day for me if I start at five, it's there's it's bumper to bumper and it's very unpleasant. So, yeah, there is a lot of cars on that on that road. Do you think that the train would be faster than driving? I do think it would be faster than driving, um, especially if it's a high speed rail connection, likely you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, I'm going to say, two to three hundred kilometers an hour is what the high speed rail could get up to. Um, one of the challenges I think would be once you arrive at your destination, there need to be significant rental car availability or, um, I'd say bike availability, but here in North America, we're not quite as good at riding bikes around uh, various places compared to somewhere like the Netherlands. So there would need to be, I, I think some infrastructure once you got to the destination. And then if it, if it is a downtown to downtown connection, I don't know how much room there is in Calgary downtown or Edmonton downtown to put in a high-speed rail station. Well, one option is to extend our station. So, fun fact, Calgary's, we call it the C-Train, our our subway-like metro system doesn't go to the airport, which is silly if you ask me. But if we extended it to the airport and this train just went to the airport, that would be fine. And, and same thing in Edmonton. If Edmonton had a train that went to the airport, I mean, Edmonton's airport's in Leduc, so it's not really that close to downtown but if they had infrastructure in edmonton to get you to downtown i mean that's not the end of the world it's a start it's not perfect but it's a start yeah it would be nice to see that that high-speed rail connection the other thing is they could just put the train right down the middle of deerfoot in the median there's there's not enough room in the median to to do that man we've gotten off on a complete tangent sorry everyone subscribing to our our podcast, our Patreon that had to listen to our divergence. But don't you, you can really feel how much we love trains though, right? That's the message we wanted to get across. We love trains. They are pretty cool. Choo-choo. All right. Back to <laughs> the, back to the Dunsbury rail disaster after our tangent on our train system here in Alberta. As I mentioned earlier, one of the take cars was filled with metasodium which is a very potent herbicide and pesticide that's most commonly used to sterilize the soil for agricultural purposes. It's great to use if you need to kill everything in your, in your field so that you can start growing things. Unfortunately, when it's mixed with water, metasodium breaks down into several highly toxic compounds. Again, not good. These chemical compounds have varying toxicities and have lives in the aquatic environment. Luckily, while some of these compounds are highly toxic, they all dissipate in a matter of hours or weeks and don't linger long term. So that's, you know, I guess silver lining. They dissipate quickly after they've killed everything. All around, if they're used for their intended purposes, probably good in marine and aquatic environments. Not good for all the fish and the aquatic life it's there. So when the train derailed and the metasodium started leaking into the river, it turned a greenish brown color where it was normally clear. So again, not good. It took almost three days before scientists were even allowed near the water due to the toxicity. So again, not good. That's how toxic this stuff was. This is pretty nasty stuff. So the metasodium plume that was in the water it traveled at just under one mile per hour. And the chemical plume wound up entering Shafta Lake, which was 66 kilometers away from the Cantera Loop, 
on the morning of July 17, 1991. At the lake, representatives from the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, the Department of Water Resources, and Southern Pacific, the rail line that was operating the derailed train, got to work cleaning up the mess, which is good. Dilution and evaporation of the metasodium combined with the continued aeration reduced the chemical to undetectable levels in the lake by July 29th, 1991. So 12 days it took before the, the levels were undetectable. And, and this was two weeks after the derailment. Unfortunately, by the time that it had reached safe levels or undetectable levels, over a million fish and tens of thousands of amphibians and crayfish were killed. Millions of aquatic invertebrates, including insects and mollusks, which form the basis of the river's ecosystem, were destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of willows, alders, and cottonwoods eventually died. Many, many more were severely injured. The upper Sacramento River is now largely recovered from the spill, which is great news, although some species, such as crayfish and frogs, have not yet come back. The watershed is carefully stewarded by the upper Sacramento River Exchange. The popular fishery is again healthy, and recent changes to angling regulations have opened the upper Sacramento River to catch and release fishing all year round. Five-pound trout have often been caught right in the city. So there you have it, the Dunsmere Rail Disaster, which still ranks as the largest hazardous chemical spill in California. Take that, Aaron Brockovich. Ooh, I love that movie. Well, luckily, most species have completely recovered now after a three-year fishing ban. It's also nice to see that the regulators have put mechanisms in place to prevent this type of disaster from happening again. It's excellent to see. We want to learn lessons from our mistakes. Not repeat them. We don't repeat these things. At least we try not to repeat them. True, we try. Try really hard. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. There's links to all of these in the show notes, and we'd love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. I hope you liked the mini failure episodes we shared with you today. If you want more, there are others exclusively available on our Patreon page. For $5 a month, less than a pint of beer, you can get access to more of these episodes and you can support our show so we can keep bringing you great content. There's a link to the Patreon page in our show notes for this episode, or you can check out the support page on our website at failurology.ca for a link and a list of our current and upcoming mini failure episodes. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failurology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can join our Patreon page. Check out our show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune into the next episode for another engineering marvel, the CN Tower. Bye everyone. Talk soon.